dependent on our view of ourselves. And this varies for all of us. It doesn't matter whether you attend church regularly or not. It's probably more influenced by your circumstances at that given moment in time when you consider this question. Perhaps in some occasions in your life, your response is, quite frankly, I don't care what God thinks of me. Today, I don't even know if he exists. And if he does, I'm not entirely sure he's even remotely interested in me and what I'm doing. For some people you know, or yourself, you might find the responses, I've never really thought about it. Or maybe I'd rather not dwell on God's view of me because I'm quite happy with how I am right now and my life is fine. Other times you might have the view that actually some of the stories in the Bible are harsh. God doesn't seem that pleasant. I prefer that God doesn't have any opinion on me at all. Maybe some days you think, do you know what? There are many people that tell me I'm not good enough. I suspect God feels the same. Or you don't feel good about yourself just now, so why should God think any differently? Other times you, you'll, you'll declare God loves me. Sometimes you really believe that, and other times it's not so easy, is it? And then there's other times and you are totally convinced that God delights in you, despite your failures, despite your weaknesses. So before we go on to talk about what does God think of me, I would like us all actually to take the time right now to pause for a moment and think about this question. What do you think God thinks of you? I've actually provided some bits of paper if you want to write some thoughts down. These are personal thoughts. They're for you alone. You don't have to share them with anyone else. But I'm going to give you a few minutes to stop and ask yourself right now, what do you think God thinks of you? So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. We are all made in the image of God. Everyone. Everyone you know, whether you consider them lovely or unlovely, whether you see them as normal or atypical, those we consider good and those we consider bad, all of us bear the image of God. And therefore, when God looks at us, he sees what he has created in his image. This is more <clears throat> than our physical appearance. When we describe someone as cut from the same cloth as their parent, we don't really mean how they look, do we? My mum sometimes laughs or sighs when I express something which is so like her father. You know, it can be my way of speaking, that opinion I've just voiced or my reaction to something. Or others see me do something in a certain way and exclaim, how like your mother you are. So when we are compassionate, when we do something kind, when we are outraged, by injustice and act upon that. When we are filled with joy at the goodness we see around us and share that with others, 
we bear the image of God. It makes no difference who we are, what our culture, beliefs, and creed are. We are all image bearers. And the fact that we are all created in the image of God is what gives us worth and dignity. And that is why it is a serious thing to abuse human dignity, whether this is by crossing a line or missing the mark. We can do this to our own lives, to others, and ultimately to God, our creator. And this is not part of God's plan for any of us. When he sees it happen, his heart is broken. But let me tell you a story. One night, a man comes to see a religious teacher. This man himself was a religious teacher. You know the kind responsible for enforcing the rules. And he believed the only way to please God was to keep rigidly to those rules. Any mistake, you are back to square one. His view of God was, to be honest, pretty harsh. The standard he was trying to attain was one he didn't really have much hope of ever achieving. But because he was so passionate about knowing how to please God, he came to this teacher this night, some new guy on the scene who seemed to be saying, well, some quite different stuff. And he had some questions for him. So the two talk for a while. Then our inquiring religious leader is told something that is so far from his concept of God, it must have blown his mind. This is what he heard. This is how much God loved the world. He gave his son, his one and only son. And this is why. So that no one need be destroyed by believing in him. Anyone can have a whole and lasting life. God didn't go to all the trouble of sending his son merely to point an accusing finger, telling the world how bad it was. He came to help. To put the world right again. Anyone who trusts in him is acquitted. Anyone who refuses to trust him has long since been under the death sentence without knowing it. And why? Because of that person's failure to believe in the one-of-a-kind Son of God when introduced to him. To Nicodemus, our inquiring religious leader in this story, God was pure and holy. He expects us to be perfect and he will punish us if we fail him. Well, what Jesus was saying seemed to completely turn this on its head. Sometimes I think we believe that God is too pure to look on evil. And yet the truth is, he does so every day. God sees every act of cruelty, every mugging, every damaging word, every back someone turns on another. God sees it all and he carries that pain, which so often we choose not to look on. We'll turn the news off. We'll stop reading the paper. We'll not listen to that story. God sees it all. And because he is a loving God, he can't ignore these violations. And let's be honest, if he did, we wouldn't regard him as truly loving. Who of us does not demand justice for those that we love who are hurt by someone else? We all do. 
If God deals with those who have wronged each one of us and who has wronged those that love us, well, that feels reasonable, doesn't it? They've wronged us. Justice is required. But what about the people we have wronged? They also require justice. I mean, I know we may not have done anything we consider truly terrible, but if I give you another few minutes just now, I'm pretty sure we could all come up with a list of things that we are still living with as a result of someone else's action on our life in the past. In a letter written by Peter, one of Jesus' friends, we read, God isn't late with his promise, his promise to deal with injustice, as some measure lateness. He is restraining himself on account of you. Holding back the end because he doesn't want anyone lost, he's giving everyone space and time to change. God loves us so very deeply. He wants everyone to turn to him, and so he delays justice. When I reflected earlier on this question, what does God think of me, I realized that much of the time I view God in the same light as a really good school teacher. You know, the one who's genuinely concerned for their pupils' development. In all areas, their social skills, their academic skills, their emotional well-being. The one who's prepared to stay late. The one who provides work specifically for that child. The one who refers them to other agencies best equipped to help them. You know the kind of teacher. But that teacher does go home to their family, you know, the ones they really love. They're fond of their pupils, but they don't love their pupils. They're always a little bit detached. And I think sometimes I live in that way. I mean, God's quite fond of me. He does help me. He's willing to see me progress, but he doesn't love me. But I'm wrong if I believe that. That's not what the Bible tells us. The Bible tells us God's love is surprising. It turns up in places and in people's lives we don't expect. It's all-encompassing. It's unasked for and it's undeserved. And it is given unconditionally. In James's letter, he describes God's love as a burning passion. What a kind of fondness. Burning for each one of us. And what's even better is that God's love is for how each of us is right now, today. God doesn't love the past, better version of ourselves. God doesn't just love the future version of ourselves. He's not like, I love them because of what they're going to become. He loves you, this, this version, today, that you see. God offers his love to those who have different beliefs, to those who do evil and nasty things, to those who actively reject him, to those who are indifferent to him, and to those who are seeking him. God offers his love to those of us who've pushed him away, neglected him, or tried to ignore him. Nothing, nothing changes the fact he loves us. Jesus goes on to say, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. 
So how do we know that God loves us? Because he gave Jesus his son. This week I read, the greatness of love is demonstrated by the value of what is given. God gave us his most valued possession, his son. His son Jesus, the promised rescuer of the world. And Jesus came that we might have eternal life. But well, what, what is that? Oh, there goes my uh, microphone. Just catch that. Might need some help. Preferably female. Justine. Okay. There we go. I'll just hold it. That was unexpected. Right, where was I? Yes. So Jesus came that we might have eternal life. What is that? We talk about it a lot, but I was struck this week. I read in John's Gospel what Jesus describes eternal life. This is eternal life that they know you the only true God, and Jesus whom you have sent. Not something that's going to happen in the future after we die. Right now, eternal life is knowing God. Not a kind of passing knowing. Do you know of so-and-so? Knowing God personally, intimately. You see, when God looks at you, he desires to have an active relationship with you. We all have acquaintances, don't we? People we're willing to pass the time of day with. That's not the kind of knowing that God wants. And Jesus is the one through whom that level of relationship is possible. In his death, he took the need for judgment off our shoulders. In his life, he showed us how to live in a way which brings life, restores worth. And from his power, Jesus gives us the ability to live this life of fullness and restoration. This is some of what is offered when we enter into a relationship of trust with Jesus. However, we have a choice. If love is to exist, it must be freely given and received or it is not love. Giving requires the recipient to receive it. God offers his love to us. He is not going to force it on us. John 3 tells us, anyone who trusts in him is acquitted. Anyone who refuses to trust him has long since been under the death sentence without knowing it. And why? Because of that person's failure to believe in the one-of-a-kind Son of God when introduced to him. Let me recap. God, when he sees you, he sees someone who he has made in his image. God, when he looks at you, looks on you with passionate love. God, when he looks at you, longs to have an intimate and deep relationship with you, and he sent his Son to make that possible. God, when he looks on you and thinks about you, wants you to learn how to trust him and experience the life he has to offer. But he gives us all a choice. 
And that choice to trust Jesus is not a once-off thing. It is an ongoing choice. We often need to remind ourselves of the vastness of God's love for us and the steps he was willing to take to bring us individually into relationship with him. Perhaps today you've forgotten. Then you too have a choice in how you respond to Jesus. Let us pray. Father God, may we begin to understand today how wide and long and high and deep your love for us is. Father, thank you for being willing to give Jesus to die for us and that he now stands and speaks on our behalf before you. Father, I pray that each one of us will be filled with the desire to have the life you offer, a challenging life, but one of wholeness, of healing, and filled with your presence. Amen.